chapter 16. And we are in the home stretch, the final ten verses in this very lengthy book of the Bible. I think we have spent in the neighborhood of uh, a year and four or five months looking at these uh, difficulties that we would find in the book of Corinthians. So these final ten verses, again, this is something that many of us would probably gloss over or read very, very quickly, skimming through it. And there are some gems in here if we will take the time to look at these. So far in the 16th chapter, Paul has challenged the church at Corinth to prioritize the collection for the well-being of the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. He's outlined his travel plans where he intends to leave from Ephesus and go through Macedonia and spend several months with them as the Lord wills. And then last week we looked at what God had, what Paul had commanded them to do in this final bit of exhortation that they are to be alert, always vigilant in spiritual matters of the enemy who seeks to destroy them against the Temptation that entices to sin against false truth that will lead them away from the truth of God's Word. He also challenged them to be firm in the faith, standing unmoved in the truth of God's Word, embracing sound biblical doctrine as taught by Paul and the others who were a part of the church in Corinth. He challenged them to be spiritually mature and act like men, being transformed by God's Word and not acting like spiritual babies or like spiritual children. Fourthly, to be strong in the Lord, strengthened to live the Christian life by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who accomplishes our transformation. And then lastly, to be loving in the fellowship as Paul was towards them. So in these final verses, Paul communicates his final thoughts for them in this letter. As we know, there is an additional letter that will come their way in a short period of time, but here he's putting the end of this letter in this final greeting to them. Verses 15 through 24, read along with me, 1 Corinthians 16. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Achaia and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with the Holy Christ. Kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So the fourth piece that we see in these final things that Paul is going to give to them is his instruction. This is a singular piece that in many ways is the application of the exhortations or of the commands that he has just given to them, especially as it relates to the command to maturity and to be loving. So he says in verse 15 and 16, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, and that you also be in subjection to such men, and to everyone who helps in the work and labor. So Paul is urging them. He urges the brethren. That word urge means to call or to exhort or to encourage someone. 
This verb is used many, many times in the writings of Paul, and it always indicates that there is something of extreme importance that is being communicated. It is a is a priority. Excuse me. It is a priority. It is not necessarily a command of sorts, but it is something that is very, very important, and it means that what Paul is about to say should not be disregarded or very quickly dismissed. So the importance of what Paul is going to say begins in 16, and what we find in verse 15 in this parenthetical sentence is an introduction to these individuals that we'll come to know as Stephanus and his household. So second part of verse 15 says, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. So the household of Stephanus identifies the first believers from Paul's original journey to the province of Achaia that is recorded for us all the way back in Acts chapter 17. Achaia is a province of Asia. It's where both Athens and Corinth are located. You could kind of think of it like Kennett Square and maybe Westchester. There's some distance between them, but they're in the same general region. So Paul indicated all the way back in chapter 1 verse 16 that he had in fact baptized the household of Stephanus. And so they were special to him. They held a special place in his heart, not only because he baptized them, not only because they were first believers, but because of what it says in the last part of verse 15, that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. So we're introduced to this this household, the household of Stephanus. We learn that they are the first converts in Paul's missionary journey is recorded in Acts chapter 17. And here they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. This devotion of self indicates that their salvation has radically changed them from being selfish like most of the Corinthians were to being selfless like most of the Corinthians were not. So to be devoted to something means to make that something a priority. It means to be committed to that thing. It is a willingness to sacrifice for that thing. So the question is, what is it that we generally are devoted to in our lives. Well, there's many things that could hold a place of devotion for us. It could be our job, and we could argue that that's a good thing and a necessary thing. We could be devoted to our families, and we would argue that that is a good thing and a necessary thing. There are leisure activities. There are hobbies. There are recreational things in our lives that we could be devoted to. But being devoted to the ministry of the saints is quite different. It is being devoted to the work of the Lord, which Paul commends them to be devoted to at the conclusion of the love chapter. So this devotion expresses their hearts towards God and to other believers. They were devoted to serving them and to meeting their needs. I've said this before throughout our study of 1 Corinthians. It is not uncommon in churches today that 80% of the people do 20% of the work. The reason for that is not a lack of capability. It is simply a lack of willingness. It is the reality that we can often be devoted to other things instead of the work of the Lord. We can be devoted to ourselves what we think, what we want, what we prefer, as opposed to 
service to the ministry of the church and of the work of the Lord. Think about that. What is it that we are most devoted to in the lives that we live day in and day out? And where does our service to the Lord, our ministry to the saints, figure in to that grouping of things that we have made a priority in our life. Well, it ought to be a challenge to us, much like the household of Stephanus, post-conversion, they were devoted to being a part of the work of the Lord and ministering to the needs of the saints. So in this ministry that they had, they were both servants and spiritual leaders, and it's seen in the usage of the term here, Ministry, which is a combination of being a servant and also being a leader. It is a take on the word diakonos, which is often devoted to a deacon who is a servant. But as we studied in spiritual gifts, there are many ministries... And that is a generic service to the Lord that can, that can incorporate both the service gifts and the teaching gifts. Paul would say, this is not in your notes, and I don't think I made it here on the screen. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of ministries, the same word that we find here, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. So these individuals in the household of Stephanus were not nominated by the church to serve. They were not elected by the church to serve. In fact, they didn't wait to be asked or encouraged to lead or to serve. They took it upon themselves to serve the saints in Corinth and the surrounding area to bridge a gap between a need and the ability to lead and serve and provide. They opened their home as a meeting place, becoming a house church, and many assumed that they were faithful to teach the Word and lead by example, and they likely also helped in meeting the physical needs of those within their area of residency. So there was a lot of need, especially coming out of a pagan, idolatrous background. And if you lost a job or if you lost your business, there was a great need, much like there was in Jerusalem. And so the needs were often great in these burgeoning churches. And here was a group of people who took it upon themselves to lead and to serve, to meet the needs of others within the area that they live. So the household of Stephanus was a shining of a shining example of what love was to look like in the life of the church. So in light, of, in light of this devotion to ministry of the saints, Paul urges submission. Verse 16, that you also be in subjection. This is what Paul is urging them to do, that you be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and the labors. So the work and the labors is the work of the Lord. It is the service or the ministry of the saints to the saints. And so this is what the members of Stephanus' household were doing. They were faithful servants and leaders. And because of that, they were deserving of respect, of trust, and subjection. So Paul says, I urge you to be in subjection to men like this and to everyone who helps in the work of the Lord. 
Now, in our men's breakfast yesterday, we were having a conversation about humility based upon the book of Titus. And so we were talking about what is it that makes a good spiritual leader? Well, there's many personality traits that can make a spiritual leader good in terms of relating well to others and not pushing others away like being humble, like not being arrogant, like being a good listener and other other and many other things that we had mentioned. But there are also spiritual traits that make spiritual leaders good. And this is what Titus outlines for us in Titus chapter 1 verses 7 through 9, for the overseer, the bishop or the elder, must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, And here to me is the epitome of what makes a good spiritual leader in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. You can have a guy that is well-loved. You can have a guy that gets along well with people. He can be respectable as far as the world sees. He can be faithful in his attendance. He can be a generous giver. But I promise you this, if he is not sound in doctrine, he is not going to be a good spiritual leader. Isn't that right? And so this is what I believe is a part of what Paul is urging subjection to the household of Stephanus and others like them because they are sound in their doctrine. Because this is who they are, they deserve subjection of other people. So we could ask ourselves, what is it that makes a good spiritual leader? But you know the question that probably isn't asked very often, and that's this. What makes a good spiritual follower? Well, here I believe Paul answers that question, and it is subjection to spiritual leaders. Now, let's be honest. Subjection is difficult, right? Who says, oh boy, somebody else I get to submit myself to, some other entity that I have to submit to the authority of, nobody likes submission, nobody likes subjection because we are self-willed, we are self-driven. Subjection is difficult because it's easy to find faults in others and often miss or ignore our own. Subjection is difficult because we often think we know better than others or that we could do something better than others. Subjection is difficult because we are, by nature, rebellious people. I wonder if you've ever left from a worship service and said, you know, he didn't preach a very good message out of the passage. I think I've heard other people that could do better than that. And I think I myself might have been able to handle that passage of Scripture better. Whether that be a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or he reads something in a book and we say, I don't think they said that very well. I think they would do better to say it like this. Or somebody that's sung a song or somebody that's organized a volunteer activity and we look back in our own self-righteousness and we say, huh, I think think I could have done better than that. You see, a good spiritual follower is somebody that subjects themselves to spiritual leaders like the household of Stephanos and others 
who serve the Lord respectfully and dutifully. With all the conflict that is embroiling the church at Corinth, Paul is calling upon them, he is urging them to subject subject themselves to faithful spiritual leaders like those found in the household of Stephanos because they need it. So be in subjection to faithful partners. This is what Paul is saying. Paul can uphold the household of Stephanus and others like them because they are serving the Lord faithfully. They are deserving of respect. And because of that, the church at Corinth is called upon by Paul to subject themselves to Paul's household. Paul goes on to say here, excuse me, Stephanus' household, verses 17 and 18, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. So Paul is mentioning here what is assumed to be other members of the household of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, but nothing is really known about these men. They're not, their names don't appear in the other writings of Paul, nor do they appear in the book of Acts. It is assumed that they have come from Corinth to visit Paul while he was in Ephesus. It is believed that they were the ones that delivered the letter from Corinth to Paul that we don't have a copy of, that Paul is now responding to. And so Paul says that Fortunatus and Stephanus and Achaicus have supplied to him Christian fellowship with the Corinthian believers were not able to supply to Paul because of distance. And so in doing this, they have refreshed Paul's spirit by encouraging him, by identifying with his ministry in Ephesus, by extending to him genuine friendship. So this should be a hallmark of our own church gatherings, that whenever we meet, our spirits should be refreshed because we've been in the presence of other believers who have encouraged us, who have supported us, who have loved us, who have come alongside us in Christian friendship. And so when we come together to worship, we should be excited about the opportunity to be encouraged and to encourage others in Christian friendship. God can and often does comfort us directly, but God often uses others to be His instrument as this means of encouragement in our lives. In fact, we would read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the God who comforts the depressed comforts us by the coming of Titus. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard people say, you know, I was really debating about coming to church today. It hasn't been a very good week. It hasn't been a very good month. I just wanted to stay in bed. But I'm so glad that I did come because I have been encouraged through the fellowship that I have with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It was good to come and worship. It was good to come and be challenged in God's Word. And I'm glad that I came. So while God can comfort us directly, He often uses others to carry out that process in our lives. Have you ever been encouraged because you've been in the presence of other believers? It ought to be a regular experience for us that we leave here more fulfilled, more encouraged than when we came. So when Paul is near the end of his life, 
when he was in Rome, when he was wondering when his death sentence was actually going to be handed down for him, we see that he was in dire need of encouragement, and he indicates this in his writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 9-11. He says to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. His child in the faith, one that he would call the beloved, he says in verse 10, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescas has gone to Galatia, Titus to, to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. So all of these individuals, Paul was expecting a refreshment in his spirit through their mutual friendship in the Lord. So what the household of Stephanos is able to provide, the Corinthians desperately need, and that is an encouragement and a a refreshment in their spirits. Paul urges them to subject themselves to these men because of their devotion to the ministry of other believers. As they have refreshed Paul's spirits, they can also refresh the spirits of the Corinthians if they will in fact subject themselves to it and accept what it is they have to offer. So they are to acknowledge these men, which means they are to respect them and show appreciation to them for their ongoing service to the Lord's work. Number five in our outline, the last piece here, is his greetings, Paul's personal greeting to the church in Corinth. In an effort to encourage them in in their own journey, Paul passes on what he hopes will be a source of refreshment for them. And so these greetings from other churches and believers are passed on. So the first part of what we see here is greetings from others, verses 19 and 20. The churches of Asia greet you. Achaia and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, it's unknown how many churches exactly there were in the province of Asia or if the Corinthians knew of any individuals in those churches, but there is still this genuine, heartfelt greeting from other believers for the well-being of the church in Corinth. You know when we have a missionary who comes and the missionary that comes back and gives a report of their ministry and we pray for their ministry efforts and we pray for the needs of those people, those missionaries go back and they say, I met with my churches and my churches have been praying for you and my churches greet you in the name of the Lord and I promise you that those people in those other parts of the world are refreshed and encouraged by our prayers for them. And so this is the idea that Paul is passing along, is that you are not alone in your struggle. The churches in Asia send their greetings. Achaia and Prisca or Priscilla are known to them. They live in Corinth, but they are now currently with Paul in Ephesus, helping him with his ministry. We are introduced to them in Acts chapter 18, and it's widely believed that Paul lived with Achaia and Priscilla in his original journey to Corinth, as recorded in Acts chapter 18. They were also influential in the conversion of Apollos, who later became a pastor in Corinth. 
And so all the brethren who are with Paul in Ephesus, those that are coming alongside in his labors, share their greetings with them. And Paul encourages them to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we don't have a holy kiss today. I mentioned to um, Mary earlier, I said, I don't have a holy kiss to give to you, but I give you a holy handshake or I give you a holy hug. It's a warm embrace. Somebody that we haven't seen in some time. Somebody that we have a very a very deep relationship with when they come into the church or when we see them in their home or our home, we will give them a warm embrace. And that is the idea here. What was a part of this culture is that they were to greet one another with a holy kiss, a sign of love and affection and connection spiritually. And this is what Paul is encouraging them to do. It's a sign of love and companionship in our journey together in our walk with Christ. Paul encourages this holy kiss four times in his writing. Peter does so once. And then in these final three verses, this is Paul's personal greeting to them. Greetings from himself. And he says in verse 21, the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Now that might seem a little odd, but it's widely known that Paul had very poor vision. He was not able to write out the letters that he wrote to these other churches. They were dictated to a scribe, and in this instance, likely Sosthenes that was mentioned all the way back in chapter 1. And so here Paul concludes this long and very difficult letter in his own handwriting saying, I sent to you my greeting, Paul. And it serves as a means of authenticating the letter that is being written, presumably from Paul. And so this in his own handwriting confirms that. And in this final greeting of Paul's own handwriting, which was likely five or six times the size of the scribe who was penning this letter, he issues letter A, his warning. Now, it might seem to be a little bit out of place all the way at the end, but this is in Paul's own handwriting, and it indicates that this is of supreme importance to Paul to write this in his own writing, verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. So this final challenge to those who love self-will and self-rule above their alleged love of the Lord. This is the challenge. This individual who professes to actually love the Lord, but does not in fact truly love the Lord, this individual is to be accursed. So to be accursed is to be under judgment. And it is to be destined for an eternity apart from God, primarily because they have deviated from not only subjection to spiritual leaders, not only because they have ignored these commands that Paul has given, but because they are the source of the factions and the fighting and the quarrels of the sexual immorality and the idolatry and the paganism, the ones who are leading others in the name of Christ into false truth. These individuals do not really love the Lord. They are under the curse of 
And Paul mentions this in his, in his letter to Galatia. In Galatians 1, 8 and 9, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And for good measure, Paul repeats this. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So in the same intensity, Paul says, anyone who does not love the Lord is to be accursed. It is a warning to remain true to the teaching of the apostles. It is a warning that those who deviate from the teaching of the gospel prove that they are not genuine believers, but they are actually under the curse of judgment, not under the blessing of grace. And what makes this warning somewhat difficult is Paul concludes that with the phrase Maranatha, which means, come Lord, or it is a prayer indicating, I desire for our Lord to come. And so this could be a reminder to those under judgment that the Lord is coming and will judge them upon His arrival. Or it could be a call for the Lord to come and put an end to all that is wrong and to make all things right as God will do so in a restoration of a fallen world and their creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Either way, however we would understand Maranatha, it would be bad news, bad news for those who are outside of the faith. Lastly, secondly, in this greeting from Paul, he extends his blessing. Verse 23 and 24, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so the grace of the Lord and the love of Paul for them in the Lord concludes this very long and this very challenging letter. And it is very reminiscent of how this letter began with a call to the grace to remember the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we conclude this very long, very difficult, very challenging book of the Bible, there are so many things that we could go back and hang a hat on. And I won't take the time to do that hat hanging for you, but I do it for myself, and I hope that you will do that for yourself. And for me, initially, I come back to Paul's desire of love for the Lord and love for the church, that they would exhibit this love in their interactions with one another, that the outside world would see that love and be drawn to them as they do their very best to live out their love for the Lord. Would you pray with me, please?